0: All right, today we begin our study in the book of 1 Peter. Just a reminder that here at Grace, it is our practice to preach through books of the Bible regularly. We'll take breaks and do a couple topical stuff, but in general, we want to give you a healthy diet. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, we think this is healthy because it teaches you how to study the Bible. Uh, It guards us from skipping hard passages, and it models how God's Word is our ultimate authority. 1 Peter is summed up in these three themes there on your screen. Hardships, holiness, and hope. Hardship, holiness, and hope. Peter is a disciple of Jesus. If you didn't know that, he was one of the 12 disciples, one of the closest followers of Jesus, who followed him for those three years. And he wrote this book at the end of his life in the early 60s. Uh, And we see in verse 1 that he's writing to Christians scattered throughout what is called Asia Minor, what today would be modern-day Turkey. And at this time, Christians have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire primarily because of persecution, religious persecution. Christianity was a new religion, right? 60 years old. Uh, but it was already threatening the very a fabric of Roman and Jewish societies. The early Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. They proclaimed a message of salvation in one God who became a man. Their social and sexual practices were radically different than the culture around them. And they claimed to follow a man who had been killed on a cross and then raised on a third day. Can you see why Peter would address his, his followers, Jesus' followers, as exiles? They were outsiders. They were living in isolation. They were facing lots of uncertainties. And while we may not be going through persecution today, like the early church, we're facing a lot of uncertainties and isolation ourselves, aren't we? Peter is writing to help these Christians understand three things. One, to understand how to endure hardships and not lose faith. Two, he's calling these Christians to pursue holiness in the midst of an increasingly antagonistic culture and three he's reminding them of the hope which will sustain them to do those first two things don't we need that same kind of reminder today the encouragement to not give up in the midst of hardships the the call to pursue holiness to become more like jesus by his grace and the hope which will give us the ability to do both of those things and not give up so here we are first peter First message, born again to a living hope. Thank you, Coretta, for reading this. The first lesson we see here in these first two verses is that Christians are chosen by God and called to live as exiles in this world. We're chosen by God and called to live as exiles. Notice he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He's using Old Testament language when he uses the word exile. He's identifying his readers with the, uh, the Israelites who, during their time, many years spent in captivity in Babylon. Why that connection? Why is he calling us exiles? Because he wants us to see that, like Israel back then, Christians now live as exiles in a foreign land. For them, they were living as exiles in the Roman Empire. And just like Israel, God still was in a covenant relationship with them even if they were in a place that they couldn't call their own. And that's true for us today. The word exile means a temporary resident in a foreign place. In other words, as a Christian, if you embrace this biblical concept of exile, then you have to admit this right here where we are now is not our homeland. We are on a journey, and this is not our destination. We do have a home waiting for us. It's a glorious home, and, and Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. That's our country. Do you see yourself as an exile? Do you live as an exile? Or have you become so comfortable here that you've sort of made this your permanent home? Or maybe on the flip side, that you, you're, you're you're just like, you're kind of blocking. You're like, you know what? I'm going to hunker down here. I'm so determined to get to heaven that I'm going to kind of put up walls, and I'm going to hunker down, isolate, and I'm going to detach from the world. No, that's not how an exile lives. Read the Old Testament. Read the prophets. God calls his people. Here's how you live as an exile. Form relationships. Live and invest in your communities. But don't be too attached. And shine the light of Jesus wherever you go. All Christians are exiles. That's the point. All Christians are exiles. But notice, look, what kind of exiles? We are elect exiles. Meaning God has chosen us. Elect simply means we belong to God. We are His. Paul says, Christians are elect, notice, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling with his blood. Peter is showing us how all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. Our identity as elect exiles is rooted in the mysterious plan of God. God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. By sheer grace, the Holy Spirit sets you apart and continues to shape you into the image of Jesus. And Jesus himself justifies you by his blood and calls you to live in obedience to him. Peter, right up front, is reminding Christians, every person, every, all three people in the Trinity are involved in our salvation. And if you're going to live as an exile, if you're going to live in this world, how to live in this world but not of this world, if you're, going to, uh, if you're going to figure out how do I do that well, if you're going to think differently than the people around you, Peter wants you to remember how glorious is the God who has called you his own. He's saying right off the bat, take heart, Christian. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through a lot. Don't be dismayed. The Lord delights to call you his beloved children. Christian, you are chosen by God and called to live as an exile here. Lesson number two, rejoice that your salvation now is a guarantee of your glory to come. Now that we know what our triune God has done in saving people like us, how should we respond? That's verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed. Less, it's the word in the Greek that, that's eulogize." It means to speak well of, to speak good words. We had a funeral yesterday where we spoke well of Sandy Bossard. We eulogized her appropriately so. When we speak good words about God, we are praising him. That's what Peter's saying. Praise God. Speak good words about God. And before I go any further, let me just ask you, when is the last time you blessed God with your words? It's so easy to talk about the negative things that are happening, the hard things that are happening. When is the last time you intentionally said to somebody, as you're talking with, I just want to praise God for this. I want to bless God. I want to speak good words about God. You see, there's no person in the universe who deserves more our eulogizing than God because of his great salvation. Peter's saying, we got to start by praising him. Don't you understand? He says, don't you understand what God has done? God has harnessed the forces of nature, literally. And he has orchestrated the events of human history perfectly, also that in his great mercy and grace, he could provide you and I with the one thing we could never provide for ourselves, and that is the new birth, new life. Notice he highlights it's the great mercy of our Father who conceived our salvation. Sometimes people think God the Father is a God of judgment and wrath, but it's the it's Jesus who comes around and says, no, I'm kindler, and gentler, and I make sure that the Father doesn't destroy you. No, that's not how this works. It is out of the Father's own great mercy. That word great is mega. And the Father has mega mercy, and that drove him to design what salvation would look like from the beginning of time. There is no stronger image for salvation than a new birth. Think about your own family of origin just for a moment. You share the genetic makeup of your biological parents, whether you like it or not. My parents are Egyptian. They immigrated to America. That's my ethnicity. Generally, genetically, that usually signifies darker hair, a larger nose, a more stubborn personality <laughs> and like many i take pride in many parts of my heritage and the truth but the truth is we derive more from our parents than we'd like to admit some of us spend our lives reinforcing what we got from our parents and all of us spend our lives trying to shed what we got from our parents and yet peter's saying listen listen christians you have a new and better identity You have a new family. You have a new citizenship that is meant to transform how you view yourself and how you live. Whether you feel shame or pride about your family of origin, you have a new birth. You have a, a, a new identity, a new life that is all-encompassing. You have a new father who miraculously and mercifully caused you to be born again into a new family of God. You are now not just a child of your parents, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever they've done, you are now a child of God. how did God bring about this new birth how could he make us how could he cause us to be born again spiritually Nicodemus's question how is this possible Peter tells us it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead Jesus the perfect God man came down from heaven fully God fully man lived the life you and I should have lived but couldn't and then was unjustly sent to the cross and he was abused and he was beaten and he was mocked and he and he was killed on a cross but listen he didn't die for his sin did he he didn't have sin he died for your sin and mine he bore our sin on the cross he didn't just die instead of you he died in your place he experienced the curse of sin that we deserved But just like we sang, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. If he did, there'd be no Christianity, Paul says. It would be a foolish religion. We are fools if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But if he did, and he did that he rose victoriously from the grave, then listen, we too can have victory over sin and hell and death. We too can be raised to newness in life. And we too can have the hope that one day when we breathe our last year on earth, the moment we breathe our last, the next moment we are in the presence of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the living hope. Listen, God saves us not just to have a better life now. He saves us so that we can know that there is life even after death. Pastor Brady said yesterday that in moments when you are facing the end of life, you don't want to have uncertainty. You don't want to be able to say, maybe I'm going to get there. You'd want to know for sure, don't you? And we can and we do. And it comes through faith. Notice verse 5. It comes through faith. A Christian is someone who has turned from their sin and turned to Jesus in faith and received Him as Savior. Have you done that? Have you done that if you're watching? To reject Jesus is to reject God's great mercy. To reject Jesus is to reject the gift of salvation and to be under His punishment for sin, which is eternal separation from God in hell. But Peter is saying, listen, how can I magnify it enough for you? There is a hope, there is a mercy, there is a grace that brings us great joy. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We are born again, a glorious future, a new identity. And if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, you have that right now and forever. Notice he says, we have a living hope. In the Bible, hope is not some vague wish like Uh, I hope we can have Chick-fil-A today. No, it's Sunday, right? (laughs) Duh. No. In the Bible, hope is a certain expectation of a future event. Future event. We have a certain expectation about our future that Jesus will come and take us home to be with him. Why? Because of his own resurrection from the dead. We have a hope that no matter what hardships we face today, nothing can change our standing with God as his beloved children. Nothing can stop his plan in our lives and nothing can prevent us from experiencing his glorious inheritance one day. What are you hoping in today? Are you hoping for an end to this pandemic? Yeah, fine. But is that your ultimate hope? Are you hoping that your candidate will get elected and get our country back on track of whatever you think it should go? You see, we, need to, we tend to fix our eyes on, a, uh, on some reference point here on earth. That's our reference point. This is what makes everything else make sense. Uh, a hope that our circumstances will change is usually what it is. One day I'll get married. One day I'll have a better job or the job of my dreams. One day I'll be appreciated and, and accepted the way I deserve. But what happens when those things don't happen? What if you don't get the job or the marriage or the pain doesn't go away? Do you have a hope that even death can't shake? Do you have a foundation that even the storms of life cannot overshadow and move? I'm begging you, Christian, make sure your hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that never fails. It's a living hope. But our rejoicing is not only in the promise of a future resurrection, Peter says. We also can take joy and have hope in the promise of a future inheritance. Verse 4 You've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Christian, you have been given a spiritual trust fund that is absolutely secure. You are totally vested. You don't have to worry if the S&P or the market's going higher or lower. It doesn't matter. It's always getting better with God. It's always going up. The value is always uh, beyond comparison. You can lose a job or a dream or even your health, but there's nothing that can get in the way of you experiencing The unstoppable love and mercy of Jesus Christ, which is yours for eternity. That should be our fixed reference point as Christians. An inheritance that disappointment and disease and death cannot touch. It's so glorious that it's meant to make all suffering on earth endurable. It's meant to make it worth it no matter what we go through. How much time, Christian, do you spend pondering your own inheritance? A body, a future body, that will never ache or wear out. Won't that be amazing? A glorious new heavens and earth where there will be no more evil, no more shootings, no more abortion, no more social media shaming, no more suffering, no more death, and you'll be with Jesus. I'm serious does that not does it bring you joy you say Mark come on that's just pie in the sky you're you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good that's hogwash you can't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good you're probably not heavenly minded enough it's that we don't believe this is actually our reality forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever ever. yeah cancer stinks but being with Jesus for one moment will make it feel like mist. You, what was it? I don't even remember. What was that? Did I just, did I feel something? I was praying with my four-year-old recently, putting him in the bed, and I quoted Jesus saying, I mean, know Jesus, you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And I realized he probably doesn't know what forsake means. And so I said, "Beniah, do you know what that means, what I just said? And he said, Yeah, Daddy, it means Jesus will never say goodbye to us. It means no more goodbyes. And I thought, that's exactly it. Part of what will make heaven so glorious is you will never hear these words ever again. Goodbye. Never. Ever. God is guarding our inheritance, but Peter says he's not only guarding our inheritance, verse 5, he's guarding you. He keeps you. His grace ensures that when you get to the end of your life, you will get your inheritance. You, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Peter knows that the trials in life can trip us up. The original audience of this letter were experiencing persecution, and they're wondering, is it worth it to keep following Jesus when it's this hard? If I follow Jesus in this world and it's this hard, how can I know that I'll make it? They were wondering. How can I persevere? And the answer is the God who keeps our inheritance secure in heaven is the same God who will keep his children secure here on earth. The same God who keeps our inheritance secure. If you're convinced he's got that, he's never going to let that go defiled or or, or, or it's never going to get messed with. No, then remember this. Just as sure as that is, he's never going to let you go. He's never going to let you fall off. He keeps his children. Christian God is keeping your heart from a level of despair that would thwart your hope in him. That does not mean life will be nice and comfortable for us. Far from it. We will likely experience the worst parts of living in a broken and sinful world. But no matter how hard life gets, you can cling to the promise that he is guarding you That's a military term. We got something better than secret service, something better than the most powerful military in the world. We got Jesus himself guarding us. What? I'm not important. I'm not the president. Yeah, you're my son. Don't you see? We protect people nowadays who are important. Nobody walks around protecting me. Sometimes we wish that. No. Nobody does that. But God says, yeah, actually, they do. Spiritually, Mark, I'm protecting you. Christian, He's protecting you, He's guarding you. He will watch over you and sustain you until you finish the race set before you. Guard, God guards us. How? Notice, He guards us through faith. You see, unbelief is the greatest threat to your soul. Not that broken relationship, not the coronavirus, not the diagnosis. Unbelief is what can shipwreck our lives and God says, I will not let that happen to my children. He promises to sustain us and to sustain our faith by his resurrection power. Listen, some of you may be at the end of your rope today. And I want to speak directly to you. Maybe the wounds of life have, felt, have left you feeling completely defeated i know there are some of you watching i know there are some of you here who have been through so much stuff and you're here and you're wondering god how can i make it one more day one more moment here i want to remind you christian you don't have to have it figured out you don't have to know what's next it's okay to not be okay what i'm asking is you keep believing that he will not let you go I'm not asking you to even hold on to Jesus, because sometimes you might feel like you've lost your grip. You're holding on to a rope, and you're like, I, "I don't know how to hold on any longer. It's hurting. I can't do it anymore." Then remember, whether you have failed God miserably or whether you feel like life has failed you miserably, here's what you can know: He will never fail you. Never. You let go of the rope, and you find He's been holding on to you the whole time. He's got the rope. Yes, I want you to hold on, but when you let go, he's still got you going. Yeah, that's right. I'm holding on to you. I never fail. And so we can rejoice in our salvation now because of the glory to come. Thirdly, lastly, trials strengthen your faith and deepen your love for Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, meaning in this salvation, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice, in the promise of God guarding your future inheritance and guarding you. Peter, Peter does not sugarcoat life. He does not sugarcoat the hardships. He says, life is full of trials and suffering. And and he uses the word for grief. That's the, 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 the strongest word for grief. It means to be deeply grieved, to be crushed. He says, in this life, you can rejoice greatly and grieve deeply at the same time. Rejoice in your salvation. And yet grieve that we're still exiles in a weary land. Peter connects our trials to the testing of our faith. He, say, he says trials reveal when, where in our lives we're trusting God and where we're not. Trials are not accidental or random. He says if necessary. Notice that? You'll face trials if necessary. Well, who deems them necessary? It must be God. If God deems them necessary, that means they have meaning and purpose. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and many other hymns, once said this Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. God does not allow trials in our lives to crush our faith, but to purify our faith. As Peter says, to show the genuineness of our faith. Peter likens, likens our faith to a metal to a metal worker who's refining gold. A metallurgist is someone who takes a precious metal and, and, and it's, he starts with something called ore. When you get, when you get a precious metal it's, it's, it's an orifice state, it's a state that's not beautiful, it's not precious, you can't see the beauty of it, it's in, an, it's in a state of ore. And so what he does is he takes a catalyst and heat and he, and he puts both of those things together and it, it begins to heat up the metal and it begins to pressurize it and it begins to burn off the impurities and it makes the ore something into a precious metal that is both beautiful and strong and valuable. That's why we buy gold. When you become a Christian, you are like that ore. And it is in God's love that he never leaves you in that state. In his sanctifying love, God will turn up the heat in our lives. Why? That feels painful. Peter understands that. I know what that's like. Peter's like, good grief. I, I, I abandoned Jesus. I know what it's like to be totally crushed. I was a failure. In just a few years, Peter is going to be crucified upside down. He knows what it's like to be grieved by various trials. But he says, listen, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Christian trials are not a sign of God's absence. They're a sure sign of his gracious and and redeeming love to transform us in the image of Christ. You see, when you go through a trial and even if it beat you up, even if you feel like you were Jacob who wrestled with God all night and God touched his hip and he left limping and he's like, man, I got to limp for the rest of my life. Listen, if you feel like whatever that trial is leaves you limping for the rest of your life, if you come out of that trial with a faith that is more dependent on God before, that results in praise, honor, and glory at Jesus Christ, both now and when you see him. Peter points... Peter's point is not, find a way to overcome your trials. It's not your best life now. It's not whatever garbage you're, you're, you can watch on TV from those guys who want your money. No. Peter is saying, "Listen, it's simply holding on to faith in the midst of your trials. This honors Christ. Peter is talking to people who have not seen Jesus physically, but he has. That's why he says in verse 8 and 9, that you have not seen him, you love him. That you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. None of these believers in Asia Minor had seen Jesus. They didn't witness his miracles. They didn't see him crucified and risen from the dead. They, they're getting the second hand, but, Jesus, but Peter saw him. And he knows there is a special glory, a special gift that those who have not seen him would still love him. Christian, anyone here seen Jesus? Physically? No. But you love him, don't you? You believe in him, don't you? There's a glory in that. There's a special glory that God has given you and I the gift of being able to behold him and, and love Him, and worship Him, and follow Him. He's, he's saying, listen, suffering grows our faith and love for Him. It deepens our longing to see His face, that we might receive the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Joy can grow and flourish, even the most difficult of hardships, especially when you're convinced that the unseen God, who lovingly allows those hardships, is the one who's chosen you by His grace, saved you by his mercy, is preparing an inheritance that will blow you away and will personally come back to take you home. When those things sink in, even in our trials, Peter says, we can be grieved deeply and even still have this sense of joy that we are his, he is ours. Do you know him? And is your hope and joy rooted in Jesus? Do you have a living hope today? Let me pray. Father, we do need you. We need you deeply. We need a living hope. We have a living hope. May your word produce in us a deeper faith, a greater love for you, a willingness to see the future for all that will be to help us today in all that we endure may your people experience true joy even in the midst of deep sorrow we bless you this morning lord tomorrow could be the worst day of our lives but right now while we have breath we bless you we praise you you have done everything needed for us to be secure in christ this is a glory we pray that everyone here would might know your gospel and believe it and for those maybe right now in this moment who have not trusted in christ maybe it's a child maybe it's a student maybe it's someone who's who's been around church and they're watching and but they've been struggling lord i pray that they would turn from their sin turn from whatever they've been hoping in and turn to you right now in prayer and cry out jesus i need you to be my savior i trust in christ as my savior who died and rose for me i want to follow you as my king God, do what we could never do, cause the new birth to take effect in the lives who need to call upon your name. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen.